Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation with people who share some of the lessons they've learned in their lives so that we can learn from them. This week, I continue my conversation with my sister, Emily Marvash, and we go into some depth on music and what she loves about it and go into some concluding thoughts on art and meaning-making and what makes us human. I hope you enjoy. What was it, if I can ask, that initially drew you to either music or performing? My recollection is that you started taking voice lessons when you were a teenager, when you were... 13 maybe right uh yeah that sounds about that sounds about right well I mean it began with and this is this is like a huge educational policy question that um that we all talk about all the time is how do we get young children interested in classical music and you and I came from a position of privilege we didn't have a ton of money but we had parents who valued um, a music education. So we had to take piano lessons starting at like age five, right? And I hated piano lessons (laughs) and I wasn't good at it. But what I was learning is um, I was getting a better music education in private piano lessons than I was getting in the public schools. Mm -hmm. And it was because we had parents who first of all, knew what classical music was, and second of all, had a little bit of disposable income to give their kids piano lessons, and third of all, provided a safe and stable household that could support that. Because we had those things, we we were introduced to classical music at an early age, just learning about music, learning what music theory was, and how to read the notes, and what that means on a piano keyboard, and there are children who never, ever have that experience and expecting them to become classical musicians in high school or college is naive. Mm -hmm. And um, so a person like me who had that grounding and had a little bit of musical education at a young age is far more likely to to pick up classical music, either as a performer, a practitioner, or an audience member. And, you know, everybody talks about this diversity gap in classical music, and it's because nobody's nobody's giving piano lessons to every child in America and right. offering them the choice to pick it up or not. Mm-hmm. They're just denying them that choice. We, as an educational society, are denying children that choice. And then we walk into a symphony hall and wonder why everyone on stage is white and everyone in the audience is white. Mm -hmm. Well, it started 40 years ago for everyone in that room, you know? Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I, I, I learned music when I was young before, before I could have made that choice for myself. You know, that choice was made for me and Mm -hmm. I'm grateful it was because it just in the, in the same way that, like I was also taught to read about the same time and that 
that skill allowed me to do a lot of things that I love doing now. Um, And so I'm grateful for that skill because then when I wanted to join the band when I was 10, it was easier because I knew how to read music. And Mm -hmm. when I wanted to be in the choir when I was 13, it was easier because I knew how to read music. And I, I had some of those skills already. And it just, you know, I was already leaps and bounds ahead of ahead of other people. It was easier for me. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, thus my privileged journey continued. Um, and, uh, so, so, so that's how I got started in music. And then I got started in singing because I had two options for a time block in class. And one was basic music appreciation and one was choir and basic music appreciation was super boring because I knew it already. So I took choir and it turns out I was kind of good. So, um, so then, you know, then I kind of got started in the same way that lots of kids get started in anything is that someone notices an aptitude that they feel that they can nurture. So whether that's this kid can run fast or, you know, this kid is good at math or this kid is good at music, you know, then, then parents and educators see that and foster that. Um, So then, you know, that it, it was just kind of a matter of, you know, getting me with the right person, the right voice teacher, and and just seeing if I enjoyed it. Um, and I did. And that was, you know, then then it was all it was choir all the time and voice lessons and a music major in college. And, you know, I, I liked it and I was good at it. Um, and at the same time, it is the thing in my life that has most consistently supplied me with a challenge. And that sounds really douchey to say, um, because I, I didn't, well, because I, I, it sounded like I was saying nothing has ever challenged me and I'm good at everything. I put oh, my mind I to it. And that's obviously not true. There are things that, um, that are big challenges for me that I just chose not to address. For instance, I'm a bad runner and I tried running briefly and it was bad and I gave up. So that was a challenge that I just kind of ignored for a while. Um, so, so school, you know, school like was challenging, but I did it and it's done. Um, and you know, relationships are challenging. Um, but I think I've come to a part, a point where I, you know, am happy with my family relationships, friend relationships, romantic relationships. Um, although that still takes work, but singing continues to be an intense challenge for me and one that I cannot turn away from and don't want to turn away from. Um, and so it, it was something that I had an aptitude for, something that I enjoyed, and something that continued and continues to challenge me. When you say so, so two questions that are connected. First, can you talk about what you mean when you say classical music? And then sure. can you share a little bit about what it is about classical music that so enthralls you? So everybody's going to have a different answer for this. Um, the technical... Oh, this is like so complicated. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, classical music is, um, the easiest way to define it is music created by a Western European civilization 
starting at the end of the Dark Ages. Um, okay. So, like, starting at, like, 1500, um, people in Western Europe and then in, in America, um, the Western Hemisphere, as it became colonized by Western Europeans, um, ha- have a musical language that has sort of become known as what we call classical music. Um, and that, um, it has a set of loosely, there are exceptions to everything I'm about to say. Um, it has a a loose set of, um, of musical rules and forms and, um, uh, pitches and keys that we understand, um, as Western music. And because Western European civilization was the wealthiest for a long, long time, that music became the sort of lingua franca of of education, music in education. And that's what everybody learned. And then, you know, so much ink has been spilt on it over the years that we, you know, write treatises and and we create um, environments for geniuses to thrive like Bach and Handel and Mozart. Um, and, and then their music continues to influence the study and the theory of Western music. At the same time, of course, other cultures had their own music, which sometimes does not bear much similarity to Western European music. Um, and those, those cultures and those musics those kinds of music also um, developed their own geniuses and their own instruments and their own virtuoso players and singers and writers of music. And those other um, non, non-Western non styles and traditions are slowly being incorporated into what we in the 21st century consider classical music. Mm-hmm. Um so, so everybody has a different definition of what this means. And some people honestly think that classical music died in like 1920 and mm-hmm. that, you know, anything created after that is not true classical music. Um, the, the complication for this, of course, is that there is a real classical period of music as opposed to a Renaissance period and a Baroque period and a Romantic period. Um, and, and so that, period technically ended in 1750. Um, but because the music created during the quote unquote classical period shared so many similarities with the classic Greek architecture and thought in terms of symmetry and ratios and harmony in general, um, the term classical has been expanded to cover all music that gains from the study and theory of music of that time. So that's, that's a long explanation of what classical Mm. music is. I, I I have even a broader um, definition of that. And I would say that classical music is anything Anything that 
I don't know. I was going to say it's anything that uses acoustic instruments, but that's not true because classical music includes electronic instruments and wacko 20th century inventions. And um, I guess you'd have to, and it is kind of funny, you'd have to juxtapose it against popular music. Classical music is the absence of popular music. So there's like two kinds of music and one's classical and one's popular. And that's also like, you can just poke holes in it already when you start talking about it. So I don't know. Cause then, hmm. then you think, you know, oh, well, classical music is something that's not popular or is not embraced by a majority right. of the people. <laughs> right. And that's also false. So I don't know. I don't know. And I, a lot of what I do um, falls under the sort of loose heading contemporary classical, um, which I think is, it's kind of a nice catch all because it means we're performing interesting music. We have the education um, and the, the, the fundamentals and the foundation of classical musicians, but it's contemporary. So it could be anything. And the line between classical music and popular music and folk music and traditional music is so blurry now. Um, I don't really know how to define classical music. It, it sounds like maybe your challenge with answering that question starts to point to what your answer to my second question might be which was what enthralls you about it, is that it's this very knotty, complex, multi-layered thing that seems seems to fascinate you on many levels. Yeah, it's so interesting. And people are, are just, classical musicians are doing so much interesting work. And it's, there's something for everyone. Um, it's not just orchestras playing in big halls, music whose composers died a hundred years ago. It's, it's so much more vibrant than that. Um, and, and then, you know, you have performers like Yo-Yo Ma or Bobby McFerrin who are definitely classically trained people and, deeply immersed in a traditional classical world, but they're just curious minds. And so they're doing really interesting things. Mm. And if you listen to it without knowing that it was Yo-Yo Ma or Bobby McFerrin, what would you say? I don't know. What kind of music is this? Who knows? (laughs) Even with popular music, you know, there's so many different labels and definitions and you know there there really is something for everyone and um and I regret that the label classical music is alienating for so many people because it's just music and I think people I think more people would like it if they didn't feel so alienated by the ritual and the details and the pageantry that goes along with classical music. 
you mentioned that at least some people think that classical music, I don't know, ended or stopped being produced or something at, in 1750, which is what, when Bach and Handel were born? <laughs> died, yeah, when Bach died. Um, uh, that's, that's kind of, the, so Bach died in 1750 and that's kind of, you know, the symbolic end of the, of the Baroque period. Um, so did I say classical earlier? Yeah. That's when classical starts. Classical starts when Bach died. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so my question was, um, is there this sense that what the old composers were doing back when they were writing music is somehow different than or in what ways is it different than what, what popular music composers do? Does that make sense? Was yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what we call classical today was popular at the time, right? You know, it was just what people right. listened to. And, you know, there was like Bach's father was employed by the town as a trumpet player. That was mm -hmm. his job. He was like a municipal trumpet player because they had so many events where they needed dance music or festival music or parade music like that was his job as a citizen was to play the trumpet and um and so that was popular you know people danced to that and you know people listened to that in their free time so i guess it was popular music um in in general no well, everybody has rules right so there's we think of the Baroque and the classical periods um, as the period of rules and, and composers like, like Bach, you know, became um, the masters of those rules. Uh, and then you, you know, like Mozart started to like break some rules a little bit um, and it made his music more interesting. And then, you know, and, and so, so there was this flowering of, um, rule breaking that sort of culminated in the early um, to mid 20th century that that's when people were breaking all the rules and by doing so we're kind of creating new rules um, and that was sort of the like modernism and atonality and 12 tone chromaticism was like the the um, the destruction of all formal rules of music hey starts um, to become fuzzy about whether they're following the rules or just not doing anything rule-based at all. Yeah, but popular music also has tons of rules, right? Like you have to use like these chords and there has to be like a, a beat and then there's usually like a bridge or there's like some sort of hook or there's a little melody or there's a little guitar riff. Like they all have rules too. Um, so I, you know, I, I think the only difference was that in the Baroque classical periods, people didn't care about music that was older. They only cared about the music that was being written right then. And now we have this like fetishistic um, obsession with old music and how it's better than everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and we can do that because we have more years of records and more years of written down music and um, and they didn't, they had less of that before printing presses. Um, so, so yeah, we can, I, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. If it's really thorny to try to define it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever thought, do, do you have any thoughts about 
you know, we look back 250, 300 years at music people were writing. Do you have any thoughts about if we flip that and think about what it's going to be like 300 years in the future, what people will treat music like? Yeah, we actually had this discussion, a few of us, um, a little bit ago about um, early music and um, and and what that will be like, how will we will consider that in the future. So um, so music that was written um, basically like kind of before Mozart is in this sort of large column of like early music. And nobody was really doing it for a long time until the late 1800s. And then people were like, oh, well, maybe we should like maybe this Bach guy is not so bad. Um, <laughs> but it really doesn't like it really all of that music was so old and so archaic to contemporary ears that people didn't really start appreciating it until like the mid 20th century. And I think part of that was a reaction against the really modern sounds that, that were coming out of the, the conservatories. And so so the, the mid 20th century kind of became this. Um, rebirth and exploration of early music. And people started going into libraries and finding manuscripts and making editions and like rediscovering all these composers from the 17th, 18th century that nobody had discovered before. And that um, like that movement, the early music movement um, sort of centered in Boston in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, that like now we have this flowering of all these groups that do early music in a, in a way that the composers would recognize. Um, and we, the other night we were talking about this, like, what is, what's it going to be in 50 years? Like, what is that going to mean? You know, will we have sort of exhausted, will we have like burnt up all the fuel of the early music movement? And are we going to like start doing something else? And what we sort of came up with is we think that, more music will only continue to be discovered. There's so much in like dusty huh. libraries and like church basements and like in walls in castles. And I mean, there's just like, there's music out there that hasn't been discovered yet. And I think it's going to be a continuing, like scholarship is just going to continue to just give more fuel to, um, to particularly the early music industry. Um, in terms of, in terms of where like contemporary music is going to go, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be this breaking more breaking rules, you know, um, getting away from the concert hall and, um, and getting away from, from opera on stage. And I think it's, I think everything's going to be, um, just different and much more interdisciplinary. I think you're going to get a lot more people who are interested in the intersection of different kinds of art and different kinds of mm. um, expression and intellectualism. And obviously like what we're already seeing is that world music and non-traditional musical styles are becoming embraced by more and more people um, as the, the globe becomes more interconnected. So I think that's definitely going to continue happening that, you know, there are, there are virtuoso, virtuoso performers in India or Sri Lanka or Africa that whose names we will know, they'll be household names, um, in 30 or 40 years. Um, and, and so I, I think that, I think it will continue to continue to be more flexible, continue to be more interconnected in terms of non-traditional musical styles. Um, and that, that scholarship will continue to sort of 
give us gifts from the yeah. That's what I think. How do you think about yourself fitting into that as, as you go forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I already notice how um, the new face of classical music in term, it, as the new face of many things um, is not white. And as a white person with a very traditional classical music background, it's, it's easy to see myself becoming not, not obsolete, but um, increasingly challenged to become a more varied performer myself. Mm-hmm. And that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, the more people that I work with that have a different background and a different educational experience than I do, the better I will be as a musician. Um, and, and I think that that's great. That's like, that's where every industry should be going. (laughs) And, um, and I, it, it takes a long time because education takes a long time and because people take a long time to grow up and, um, and get skills. Um, but, but the future of the future of classical music is not white. It can't be because the world is not white. Right. And that's, I mean, that's great. Like that's exciting and interesting. Yeah. And so, in, in a lot of ways, unpredictable. Well, um, everything's unpredictable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> The only I thing I can predict that. is that the oceans are going to rise, so. Yeah. Hmm. Well, any last thoughts that you feel compelled to share? Um, exhausted all my questions. Yeah, I mean, I just, I have always found my, and and I mean, like I said, you know, I'm privileged to be able to think about this, but I have to be optimistic about the future of everything. Um, and, and, you know, everything is interconnected. It, politics, education, global events, climate, you know. Um, but I struggle, uh, I still struggle with the importance of, um, of humanities in a world where um, people need to eat and be safe and, um, and not fear for their lives on a daily basis. Um, but I think that the humanities and that expands to literature and, you know, social sciences and dance and theater, um, are what define us as human beings. Um, and those of us who, can create in that world have a responsibility have a responsibility to continue doing so because eventually the people who who need um the people who don't have the bandwidth to do that right now um need us to to keep the humanities going so that they have something to remind them what it's like to be human um and maybe i'm not articulating this very well but um it the humanities should always have a place um 
in our experience as human beings. And without them, we, we just can't, there's not, you know, <laughs> what's the point without yeah. them? And that means something different for everybody, you know, like everybody's got a, a different thing that turns them on. Um, but they all need to, they all need to be there to remind us of our own relationship to other humans. I hope that doesn't sound Pollyanna-ish. Cause like, I mean, it's hard not to, it's hard like not being able to have a back and forth discussion about this because you know, everybody's perspective is so unique on this issue. And, you know, other people would, would have lots of things to say about right. everything that I've just said. And, you know, it's so I, I look forward to the opportunity to continue, um, continue having conversations like these because it's fascinating to me. Hmm. Yeah. It recently, it struck me that a conceit of... <laughs> humanity, perhaps of being human, is um, is how we, what I suspect, is try to uh, construct meaning around things that perhaps are fundamentally meaningless, and that this is what art is, is that saying this arrangement of colors, or this arrangement of sounds, or this process of doing this thing uh, has a meaning beyond the sounds themselves or the colors themselves mm -hmm. and that that there is something about what it means to be a human being in that process yeah that we are more than just um, machines that eat food and and have babies mm -hmm. uh, and you, know, you you mentioned the privilege that we have, and certainly there are many people in the world who um, whose lives every day are, are focused on getting getting to the next or, day, yeah, or getting <laughs> by or or those kinds of things. Um, I suspect, however, that in those people's lives, you would find a great deal of meaning making. Yeah, because they're human. Them. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and they, and that's how we, that's how we interact with our world. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's definitely a shared experience. Um, whatever it, whatever form it ends up taking, and it has ended up taking so many so many different yeah. <laughs> yeah but i don't think i mean in terms of like a, a dead forest i i just you know there's a lot of shitty things that are going on um in the world right now but it's is it's not dead art is not dead it can't be mm -hmm. killed um as long as we remain human yeah even even uh you know like you said you you lament the fact that so many um Children aren't getting exposed to the choice to pursue classical music, um, right? And and we think it would be great if they did have that choice. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and and yet, at the same time, even those children who aren't getting exposed to those choice 
those choices are, I'm sure, finding their own ways of expressing. Yeah. And that's interesting, too. Yep. I just want them to have, a, a you know, another a palette of more things that they can explore. Yeah. And that goes that goes both ways. It goes for us, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the first thing that you said. We, we have things to listen and learn mm-hmm. from others as well. So that wraps up our conversation. I hope that you got a little something from this conversation that you can take with you today and for the rest of the week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, questions to ask, or if you would like to be a guest on the conversation in the Dead Man's Forest, please reach out to me on my website, deadmansforest.org. If you want to hear more about Emily and her work, you can visit her website, emilymarvash.com, which I will also put in the show description. Thanks for listening, for being you, and I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.